1: Hi guys, before we get into this podcast, I just want to warn you that this episode contains conversation about sensitive topics, including depression and suicide, which might be difficult for some listeners. If you do feel uncomfortable with these subjects, please stop listening now and pick a different episode. Hi, welcome back to Open Mind Podcast. I'm very excited to be joined by my guest today. I've been trying to get him on for a while, but he's a very busy man. It's Alex George, or better known as Dr. Alex. He's an A&E doctor, but most of you will probably know him from Love Island. Hi, Alex.
0: Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So thank you very much.
1: I suppose for me, my biggest thing with you in the past was seeing you on Love Island. Finding out you were a doctor... And thinking, why are you on Love Island?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't something that was particularly intentional necessarily. I I didn't apply to the show. Oh, I don't really? really know how. I didn't really have any followers. I was like 200 followers or something like that. The most times I'd post people once a month in the pub with my mates or something. But I got approached by, I think it was from a dating app originally, a producer who said, oh, I think you could be good on Love Island. I thought, oh yeah, jokes, yeah, good one. And then they were like, no, seriously. And they were like, give me your email. And I was like, fine. So they emailed me and I was like, look, I love the show. I, I you know enjoy it each year. It's good. But I don't know if it'd be right for me to do it. And anyway, I told my um, consultants about it at work. I said, like, oh, they said to me to go on Love Island. I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea. I don't think I'm going to do it. And they were like, no, you've got to do it. And there's one particular consultant, Anna, who who's kind of proud of that now. She's like, I made him do it. You wouldn't have done it otherwise. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I was like, fine, I'll go for an interview. And before you know it, I was walking on the island and it all going wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a weird, <laughs> one. So it's a weird one. Yeah, I
1: just... Always wondered. I was like, what makes a doctor want to go on Love Island? Yeah, I was I like, <laughs> but I liked that. I think that's what people liked about you was that. So there was no like preconceived plan, I suppose, for you going on it. There was no like, this is what I want out of it. Did you kind of know what you were letting yourself in for when you went for it? I suppose you went in quite blind
0: look I mean I tried in my life to kind of put myself out there and do things differently and say yes to things and challenge yourself because I've always kind of believed in the fact that we get one shot you know at life and just to go for it and I lost a friend of mine when I was in med school very very close friend of mine to leukemia and a couple of days before she passed she said to me look Alex you've got to like make the most in life say yes to things like I'm now at the point where I was starting living my life and it's been cut short but I want you to make sure you do Everything, give everything your best shot. So I was kind of sat there, you know. I was on the phone with the execs and they were like, Look, we think it'd be great. Come and start on the show as like an original. And I was like, Oh, gosh, what am I doing? And I thought, Look, you know, <laughs> what would Freya say? And Freya would say, Go for it. So I decided to do it. And, you know, when I went on the show, I was like, Look, I am single. I've been single for three or four years. Let's just see what happens and, and enjoy it. And I, I'm kind of glad that I did that. I had no preconceived ideas. I quite honestly thought I'd be on there for a week or so and be back in Lewishamanee working. In fact, I said that to the consultants. I said, Don't worry, I'll be back in two (laughs) weeks. Um, You know, I had no idea that I'd be there the whole time kind of thing. It was quite a shock for me, but I really enjoyed it. It was an amazing kind of experience.
1: And how was it when you came out? Because my biggest thing with, I feel like I've been within the industry since I was 12 and I've kind of grown with it and it's changed lots while I've been a part of it. So I've kind of had time to adjust to it. But my thing with like reality shows and things like X Factor and stuff like that is you're living your life and then all of a sudden you're thrust into this completely different life. Like, You've gone from being in a bubble on the island to then coming back. That must have been just crazy for you.
0: It is completely different. I guess, you know, like for yourself, you've kind of grown with fame. It was... Not part of the plan, I guess, for a lot of people. But certainly, you're kind of following what you do, and things grow yeah. and they grow. Whereas, quite literally, I left my house in Fulham, you know, with 200 followers, and I came back with well over a million in nine weeks. I mean, that's quite an abnormal thing to happen. And yeah. I think what was interesting for me is I remember being on the show, and I was talking to everyone a few weeks in. And I was like, "Do you guys do social media and stuff?" And like, A, I was like, "Yeah, I got like 50,000 followers." Everyone had like <laughs> a K after their name, so like you know, 10K, 20K, 50K, and they how many followers do you have I was like I think like 198 like my mum follows me I guess (laughs) so it was really weird and I came off having no idea no I didn't have a management team when I came off I didn't know anything really it was it was a real shock I I actually remember my phone was pretty old at the time and I was on the minibus uh, on the way to the airport, and that's the first time you get your phone, quite literally. You know, you don't come off the show and it's handed to you. It's on the way to the airport at four in the morning. I opened my phone, and I saw, like, 1M on my Instagram, and at that point my phone just kind of, like, started pinging with WhatsApps and messages, and it just died. It actually just completely died. (laughs) It it actually killed my phone. So the first thing I had to do when I came back was (laughs) buy a new phone. So, yeah.
1: That's mental. And how did you cope with that? Did you find it easy? Because I suppose, like, I know you had like a little bit of trolling online. So you've Mm. gone from someone who's like got 200 followers. And I'm guessing most of those are people you knew and were quite friendly. (laughs) (laughs) Then you come out and yes, I'm sure you had loads of positive things. But like, let's be honest, you remember all the bad stuff like that must have been pretty tricky for you.
0: I think it was hard for me to look back and see everything that was kind of said in the time on the island. Because obviously you're in such a bubble, you have no idea what's going on outside. Uh, You're very protected from that. I mean, we didn't even know what was going on in the World Cup because that was on that year. We were desperate to know. We had no idea. God forbid. Yeah, I I know. I know important things in life. eh? But we really were kept in the dark for what's going on. And I found that difficult looking back and seeing trolling going on people are very hypercritical about appearance i my skin you know i'm very pale so i burnt in the sun but particularly because i was taking medication for my skin acne and it makes you i mean doesn't matter what you're wearing i was wearing fact 50 the whole time but it makes you really really red even not just it's not even necessarily burn it just makes your skin very red in the sun and so i got so much trolling for that but actually you know i'm quite excuse the pun i'm quite thick-skinned and i came out and (laughs) thought you know what i've done my best in that show. I think I've, I I represented myself fairly well. And, and I knew at that point, I was going to go back to work and also hopefully use the platform for positive things, which I hope I'm doing and I hope to continue doing.
1: When did you go back to work?
0: It took time, it took, I think I was really lost for about six months. I don't mean lost, but I came out and I was a bit like, well, what do I do now? I mean, it's a huge change in life. I mean, quite literally, Mm -hmm. you know, you talk about it, it's like was never in my life planned to become suddenly quite well known. And so it was a huge shock. But I kind of knew early on I would go back and I knew that I would also use the platform, hopefully for positive things. I've always been passionate about mental health since I was young, since I started being adopted. It's something that I've really always cared a lot about. And mm-hmm. so it took me about six months, I think, to really settle myself. And when I went back to work, I felt really, really like I had purpose again. I found myself within a few weeks. I was like, really like, God, I'm glad to be back. It feels nice. No one at the A&E department cares I've done or, you know, that mm. you know, I've got followers and all that kind of stuff. They're all people I've known for a long time and that's really nice. Yeah, patients go, oh, hi, Alex, you know, can I have a picture and that kind of stuff? But largely it's the same there. You go there, you do your job. I am, I am really glad. It's one of the best things I did was going back and it's actually led to me kind of having my direction since then.
1: Yeah. And what made you want to become a doctor in the first place? Like, is that something within your family or? Mm.
0: No, my family, actually, my dad's a policeman. My mum works in a bank, so completely different really I, I really liked science when I was younger and I loved like anatomy and things like that and but I also enjoy people I love people I love I find people fascinating you know it's mm. really it's really interesting to meet different people and find out their life stories and I think that kind of really attracted me to the job and I'd watched like a few shows like A&E kind of shows on tv and I was like yeah that's amazing you know responding oh. to car crashes running up dealing with the injuries like, I there's can't a bit watch of drama. those programs <laughs> you, you can't you can't you can't work in A&E if you don't like a bit of drama but I mean say that I hated blood before I was went to medical really? I, when I when I went to medical school I used to like feel faint at the thought of a needle and now like, really? I mean now I've seen everything
1: <laughs> so. that blows my mind because I'm someone like I hate having injections I hate blood those A&E programs like I don't know if when you were younger did yeah. you ever watch like 999 emergency yeah of course calls or whatever yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I used to me being an overthinking anxious kid like I would have nightmares about that show. Like, I still remember so many of the accidents that happened on that show. So I just think. Why like, didn't you come? Why like, not you
0: come work experience to me? You come to Eluisham A and E and work experience. You'd have a great time. You within you'd a few weeks would be me.
1: there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's be like, like, "It's Frank. Down. You're right. Yeah, grab your heels and start dragging you out the recess That's room." Okay. I was like, "She'd be alright. Give her a glass of water. She'd be alright."
1: That's what would happen. <laughs> you'd be like, "Oh God, she's a pain in the ass." I know that now you are, like you said before, you are trying to use your platform that you have Mm. now for good. And I know you're really passionate about mental health. And I suppose there's no easy way to bring up the passing of your Mm. brother not that long ago now. And you have chosen to speak about that. And his name's Lear. Am I pronouncing that right?
0: It's very Cle- difficult to say. So more, more than that, oh, you office clear. Googled it and every, yeah, I,
1: right. I YouTubed right. it and everything. It's okay. very hard
0: to say. It's, I named uh, my brother when I was ten years old. So there's a ten year age gap. So I mum was like, "Oh, look, you're Alex. Elliot is a middle brother, and yeah. you know, you, let's have a Welsh name for the little one, kind of thing." So I was like, "Well, let's call him Clear." But the problem is that it's fine in <laughs> Wales, but outside, it's absolutely impossible to say. So you used to tease him and say, "Look, your middle name's Lloyd, so it's going to have to be Lloyd everywhere you go." um uh, but yeah no it, it's been a tough few months there's no getting around that so, you know he passed mm-hmm. on the 23rd of June so not that long ago really even though in some ways it feels like a million years some ways it feels really? like yesterday I'm uh, probably still very much in a numb phase I guess you know I went through the kind of horror and shock and just like absolute I don't know what it is really like breakdown over it all in the first few weeks because it's just like such an incredible shock it was something that's out of the blue entirely and it's very difficult as a Older brother A, you know, and as a doctor, it's tough to have, you know, a younger sibling do that. And he, for the reason that you feel like you want to help and should or could help, you know, he had a place at medical school at Stampton, he was due to start this year. I think it will take me, well, I'll never get over it. I think it will take me a very long time to accept it.
1: Did you know that he was suffering from mental health issues before that, or was it... I think it was very, a much out,
0: very much out of the blue. It was. I think he was anxious about his exam results, and I know that was affecting a lot of people, but certainly we didn't think that he felt like that. So, you know, it's it's very tough. You'd have wanted him to say, you know, something. Certainly try to check in with the family as much as I could, but it's hard when I'm up here in a lockdown. I was, I'm on my own in isolation as well, entirely yeah. throughout that time. I'd just gone through a breakup in isolation, everything that's going on, all the stuff I was seeing, as well as trying to support family you know and I just hoped I would have hoped that you'd have said something but um, it's unfortunately they're, they're questions that will never be answered.
1: I often think with suicide is the people left behind are the ones kind of asking that want so many answers and have so many questions and I think a lot of the time that I've felt suicidal in the past but I never to the point where I had planned it or felt like I would follow that through and I often say to anyone that's experienced it that like it's the people that tend to follow it through like they generally... They're the ones that keep it to themselves and hide it yeah, the best. I, yeah, I think
0: so. Men alf- also, particularly, yeah, um, definitely, particularly often don't share, and what I think, you know, that's why I'm trying to work so hard at the moment to encourage change at schools, changing curriculum at, in education at you know primary and secondary school level, having the support, having the counselling there, so it becomes really normal. I think at the mm-hmm. point where talking about your mental health is as comfortable as talking about having a cold you know, or a physical problem, that is the level where we'll see real change. Because yeah, we are working hard. Stigma is its improving. But I still wouldn't say that people are as comfortable to say like, oh, I'm feeling quite depressed this year as they would maybe about saying, gosh, I've had so many flus this year, my immune system is right yeah. gone down. They'll say that straight away. And I think we need to close that gap. And men find that, you know, it, it is a stereotype, but it's actually very true. Men do, I think, Find it very difficult. It's very complex. Part of its societal expectations, part of its education, its cultural norms. There's so many aspects I think play into that. But education is almost always a big part of the solution, yeah. as, as with any problem. I don't think there's enough support at schools. I think mental health is a very, very small part of what goes on at schools. I think I was looking at some of the stuff around what offset look at. So the school regulatory boards and you know mental health. If you do a, a lecture once a year on mental health then that ticks that box whereas oh, really? clearly when you teach maths or you teach other subjects it's really really scrutinized and that reflects the kind of attitudes I think towards it there are, is change, some change coming there's going to be more teaching through sexual health relationships education that's going to happen at schools as of next year but again mental health is still only a small part of that whereas what I want to see happen is having real change the consideration of Mental health is actually made in everything you do and everything you teach. So there's certain points yeah. that people can access help. The idea of having mental health trained teachers who know how to maybe spot signs that they are seen as approachable to talk about problems. That when you teach something, there's there's opportunities maybe in their booklets or whatever they can text a number. There be support lines and mm-hmm. and of course having actual teaching around it as well. You know, if you're old enough to have thoughts, then you're old enough to learn about mental health. That's what I think. Uh, and yeah. I think people will only benefit ultimately. Happy, healthy children are more likely to be successful in education. They're more likely to be happier and transition into society as adults. So that's what I want to see change. And it's going to be hard work. We're trying to now speak to the education secretary. I want to speak to members of parliament and get it changed. You know, COVID doesn't help at the moment with the restrictions coming in. No. And it's a very difficult but campaign. But also it's
1: going to be even more important because COVID's going to cause, I feel like there's just going to be an even bigger boom in people with mental health issues, like people that have never experienced it before in their mm. lives. I know from my kids, I've got two boys, they go to an all boys school as well and, I worry, you know, just being all boys, is yeah. is it like unacceptable to talk about their feelings and things like that? And as someone that has suffered since being a child with depression and anxiety, I don't even know how to necessarily approach that with my kids. You know, I try to get them to speak and see how they're feeling. And my eldest is particularly such a worrier like I love the idea like you're saying about mental health being throughout all of most of their lessons you know like my son learned about flooding and tsunamis a few months ago and now he's terrified every time he sees a gray cloud Mm
0: -hmm. you know he asks me if
1: it's gonna flood and to the point of tears he really overthinks everything and I know by just saying to him oh you're fine that's not gonna happen doesn't really help that doesn't stop the worry it it can Um, do I mean
0: it's it's, what I think is interesting is like the word resilience is sometimes given a bad rap and I think what what resilience to me really means is learning within yourself to control or manage your thoughts manage your feelings and kind of guide the way that you're approaching things it's not about being oh resilient I'm a hard-nosed you know man I'm I'm resilient and tough don't talk about feelings that's not what it means at all And it's kind of building that. And I think a lot of it comes through conversation, what you do on this podcast, which is fantastic. You talk very openly about your experiences with other people, and that helps. I think when you talk to children, a lot of the time, I think we forget sometimes how intuitive children are and how open they are. They're like a blank piece of paper and you can kind of help build them. And if you're sharing your experiences very honestly with them, they take that on board, I think. Sometimes maybe we shield children too much. It's like, for example, teaching about Anatomy and sexual sex, and you know, what's good sex, what's bad sex, what's healthy sexual relationships. They're things that we definitely should be teaching children. You know, they're going to learn it anyway, they're going to see it, you know, whether watching porn or whatever they're doing at yep. old ages, they're going to learn about it. So, let's not hide away from it, let's talk about it. And it's a part of life. And as far as I'm concerned, mental health doesn't affect one in four, it's four in four. Everyone has mental health, whether it's good or bad. And I think with children, it, as you said, there is getting in early being really relaxed about it and talking about it you know do you know what I'm having a bad day it's not even just asking that it's like, look I've had a bad day today you know it's been a rough day and children engage they learn to deal and help other people with it and you say oh well, actually do you know what you know mum or dad I've also had a bit of a tough day at school and and you share in that and as we get older we do it naturally don't we with our friends we go oh god I've had a terrible day or whatever yeah. and children are the same they're very open to, the, to these things they learn from it I think
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I think definitely schools need to pick up on that. But I also feel we've done a lot of work now on encouraging people to talk, trying to kind of squash down that stigma and get people to open up. And I feel like more people are opening up, more people are going to GPs or going to see people. But I don't necessarily feel like the help is there everywhere i know like obviously you can't say the same for everyone but i feel like now people are kind of saying yeah i've spoken now what
0: yeah i think you're absolutely right you know you've said this for a while it's more complex than this but there's almost two sides there's stigma and getting rid of that and getting people talking but then creating the support and actionable points and ways that people can actually access support so it's mm-hmm. all very well people going right I'm going to talk about mental health but where do I go when I need the support and that's a big part of what I'm trying to change at school so people know where to go it's about teaching people when they come out of school they know well I can go to you know this support I can go speak to Samaritans if I'm struggling this is what Samaritans do I can speak to mind or calm about these different things I can there's shout I can text this help Blind Shout which has a number that they'll text me back and give me support it's about people not just learning about looking after themselves it's learning about where you go for different things and where you find the support but in terms of services there's no doubt as far as I'm concerned that you know the mental health services need so much more let's be honest money when it comes to support it does come down to some resources money yeah. staffing and that's a big part of it in AE, I see it very often that and we see patients, obviously, especially at the moment, we're seeing a huge, sharp rise of mental health cases and people presenting to A&E. And it's very difficult. There's often not a lot of acute beds where people can go and get support. There's a long waiting lists for community mental health support, both in paediatrics and in adults uh, right. alike. So for children and adults, there's long waits to be seen. And the only way that's going to get sorted is if we put the money into it, really, resources, funding, give it the attention that it needs so people can access service when they need it.
1: And how is it? I've always wondered, because I had a stay with my son with asthma. We ended up in A&E and then we ended up staying. And there was a girl and she seemed quite young and she was in. And I overheard that she had tried to take her own life. And I I don't know how. And she was in there and... Obviously, I couldn't say anything, but it was killing me just sitting there. A nurse came in, gave her a colouring book and said, oh, do some colouring. It's good for mindfulness or something. And then walked out and she was kind of left to her own devices. Like It was just us and her in this on this ward. And then social services might have come or something. It was some other people. And then her mum came. And as a parent, I would have felt the same. Her mum just kept saying to her, I love you you know how much I love you. And I felt like that's all she knew what to say. And I know how that would have felt. Like, you're like, well, how has this happened? I love you. I show you how much I love you. And you still wanted to do that. And I imagine for her, that would have been horrendous. But I just remember sitting there thinking that's not what it's about. And a colouring book at this stage let's be honest, like, excuse my language, is going to do fuck all. I felt a bit frustrated. But then I also understand in your position in A&E and as doctors and stuff, you don't have the funding, you don't have the support. So I just when I left, obviously, I left wondering, I wonder how she is and wonder where it went from there. But I've always wondered what the kind of protocol is, I suppose, when someone comes in with a mental health issue.
0: So I guess there's a few things there, you know, when someone presents to, so I work generally adult a and E. I'll take an example of an adults, so an adult comes in and they are, they're saying that they're suicidal, what we do is assess them, A, physically and mentally, because sometimes we miss physical problems that can be contributing towards a mental health, so we need to do a full assessment, and then we refer them to the psychiatric team who come down to see the patient and make a decision about what they need. It doesn't suit everyone. It's not the right thing for everyone to be admitted, clearly, because some people actually benefit much more from the community yeah. support. So then a decision is made whether they need to come into an acute bed, and be into hospital, into mental health support, or whether they're followed up in the community. And I think the important thing, and I think what is challenging sometimes, or at least I guess maybe you can share what you feel with this, but mental health isn't something that's just like fixed overnight. You know, it takes a lot of work. And yeah. exactly as you said, you know, colouring book, Just saying I love you, it doesn't necessarily fix anything. It's not to say it's not helpful. I mean, to show love and support is a big part of it. But I think being really open and listening as a parent, as a family member, listening to what the person has to say, giving them a space. Sometimes people don't want to talk at certain times. Maybe today, you know, I don't want to talk about how I'm feeling, but tomorrow I might. And just having that really open door of, look, when you're ready, let's talk and talk through it and supporting them through that journey. In the community, you know, there's a range. It's from, from a GP being supportive, hopefully, giving you support, whether you need medication or not, and you've got, you know, psychiatric services and counselling and talking therapies. Those are kind of mainstay of treatments in, in the community. But it is a difficult process. It does take time. And I think a big part of it as well, aside from all that, is looking at person as the central point and having that 360-degree kind of view because there's so many things that contribute to mental health isn't yeah. there? there's your genetics there's your family structure there's your relationship health your sexual health there's your your fitness your nutrition your sleep your levels of stress all of that comes together so it takes time and it's actually stopping and looking at different parts of your life but like I went through a bit of a crap time at university at one point and I had to stop and go well actually Alex you don't really have any sleep routine you've stopped exercising you're not making effort to socialize with people you're becoming quite insular and on your own you're not really speaking to family that much so all of those little things all together are making you feel down so when I actually approached each part and made little changes I'm not saying it's a quick fix like that but certainly over time I started feeling better so there's so many aspects that come into mental health but it's sometimes taking a step back and going right it's not gonna get fixed overnight let's do this steadily and be aware that it takes time that helps the person a lot as well if you go it's not about being perfect tomorrow. It's fine not to feel great. Let's just look at it and see what we can do. And over time, slowly, slowly, it might not just be a linear improvement. It might be ups and downs, but a gradual improvement over time. But that is, I think, the, in my opinion, the way to certainly approach yeah. it.
1: And do you think that's maybe why people do end up falling through the cracks, through the system is because it does take time. We all know how long it can take to get, you know, I've had friends that have been on waiting lists for therapy sessions for months. And by that point, A, it could be too late or B, like we all, I know myself, you know, I'm lucky enough to pay for my therapy. Like I'll book an appointment on this day because I feel rubbish and I've got all these feelings and I'm feeling down. And then by the day that that appointment comes, I'm kind of like, Oh, I'm through that now and I feel fine. I forgot what it was that was bothering me. And then the next day I could be back in that same place yeah. again. I think and I, you I, I, right. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like maybe that's why. And like you say, it's not linear, it's not the same for everyone. So I feel like if someone comes in with appendicitis, you kind of all know what to do and what the general thing is. And it kind of tends to work for every person. Whereas with mental health, everyone's just so different. It's How personal. do you treat each personal,
0: person? I think with the point around being almost falling through the cracks, I think that is a really big problem and that's where when I talk about education in schools is teaching people where they can go because yes it might be a period of time before you start your therapy but there's some amazing organizations out there that are there to support that actually can do a really fantastic job and also provide a lot of resources because like I said it's it's about how you assess life and what's going on and what you can change and that's why you know the calm mix samaritans shout loads of these guys have amazing as well as heads together of course have amazing resources that you can as an individual go on you can sit down and you can look at and go right well maybe I can try that in the meantime you know online counseling almost online CBT that's available through these kind of sites and and I would, I would say as well don't forget to people go to the NHS website as well because actually the NHS outlines a lot of these resources and directs yeah. you one of the things I found really helpful I used an online CBT that was free and I followed the NHS to find that and, and, and I basically spent time each day, you know, following the different activities. And you think, oh, gosh, is this going to work? But it really helped me. It kind of challenged my thoughts. I think a lot of the times, one of the biggest things, I think, is that people generally live their lives with the kind of almost subliminal messaging that I think, therefore, I am. My thoughts are me. Your thoughts aren't. That's absolute rubbish. Your thoughts are just creations of your mind. You got. If you say, oh, I talk to myself, oh, I'm always, you know, tell myself, it implies that there's two of you, Right. But there's not mm. two of you, is there? There's only one of you. There's your deep conscious, or your, your conscious, really. And then there's the thoughts. And the thoughts are just, they're fictions. And sometimes I say to my thoughts, yeah, oh, thanks for that, but just I'm not going to engage that today, Oh, I'm not really interested in, in what you've got to say today. Mm-hmm. And people, because, you know, I, I only learned mm-hmm. that in the last five or six years. I went, why do I always listen to my thoughts? Like, my thoughts are literally just creations. It's like a movie, why do I put so much emphasis on that? It's a classic one. It's like when you go, say you go out with your girlfriend and you see her chatting at the bar and they, oh, she's chatting to that guy for ages. Oh, she's probably fancying him, doesn't she? Great, brilliant. And you start thinking like that. And then she comes back and you go, oh, who's that then? Oh, that was my cousin or whatever, you know. And you just go, oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You know, as my third cousin that I haven't seen for years. But you created this whole scenario that you really were invested in to the point where you were invested enough to feel down about it. And it was absolute rubbish. And a lot of us, I think, with modern day, especially with social media, become slightly slaves to our thoughts. Uh, I think yeah. that's a big part of it as well.
1: That's so right, because I always say my biggest thing and the biggest lear- turning point for me with my mental health was was when I started learning about mental health, when I would kind of educated myself on, A, how to deal with my feelings and kind of what to do with them and also like what was happening, like what was happening in my brain and why it was doing that and almost medically as well, just any way on how to deal with it, it made me feel less like I was just crazy and less like this is who I am and my thoughts are who I am and more like question it and deal with it instead of just going along and thinking, well, this isn't going to change and this is it. And I think that's a really good point. I think that's why I think it's amazing what you're doing with trying to get it into schools is it is education. We do need to be educated on it. We all know how to look out for meningitis or sepsis and things like that but we don't necessarily know how to learn how to look after our mental health and how to look out for things yeah Um, and you're
0: you're absolutely right it's about looking after other people as well isn't it because if you've learned about it you might be able to spot someone else and be that person that is that helping hand and this is the other point is I try and say is that when you think about physical health you think physical health fitness running jogging exercise you generally think of positive things I think physical health physical fitness mental health often makes me think of depression sadness and certain things but actually it's about positive things as well it's really good to be like mentally aware of yourself know how to look after yourself know how to kind of build that muscle that is your mental health because it's the same as any physical thing as well you know if you don't feed your brain with a, the right way if you don't exercise in the right way if you don't give it rest look after it correctly basically it's gonna be like your body you know you're gonna end up with aches and pains and you don't move you get out of breath you don't feel great it's the same with a brain you've got to look after mm. it right
1: It's all about balance isn't it I suppose we say it about food and exercise like you say and things like that but we never really say it about our mental health it's about balancing work life and things that you enjoy and putting all things in in there to make sure it all stays balanced I know you've you've been part of opening a mental health crisis cafe is that right
0: yeah. So at Lewisham Hospital, we actually opened a crisis cafe where essentially mm-hmm. it would provide a better space that people could go and speak about how they're feeling. So traditionally, we see people in A&E. The alarms are going off. It's clinical rights. Everyone's running around. It's busy. Is that an environment for someone to open up about their mental health? Absolutely not. So this cafe was a place that hopefully a safe space where they'd see professionals, psychiatric nurses or doctors. In a place that's relaxed, you can have a cup of coffee, got a comfortable sofa, you've got a quiet room, there's quiet music going on, a much better space to talk than otherwise. So we'd see someone go, right, we we think this person needs support for mental health, rather than keep you in a cubicle here and feeling agitated, let's take you over to the the mental health cafe and let you see someone in a much more safe space and a quiet space. And I think that's something that I hope, and it certainly has been replicated in a lot of places, and I hope it will roll across. The country as well because I think it's a brilliant idea you know I'd love to yeah, say I came that... up with it I didn't I opened it but I think it's <laughs> fantastic.
1: Idea. and you said about different factors affecting our mental health and obviously right now COVID is a big thing but also for the last however long social media has been a really big thing and I suppose for you going from Just this fun thing that I post and my friends comment on and stuff to like your millions of followers and the pressure with that. I know you took a break from social media for a while. Like, why was that? And did you get out of it what you were hoping to?
0: I think it's interesting on social media. I think it's yin and yang. There's good and bad to it, isn't there? And actually, you know, take the example, my brother passed away. I felt it was really important that I made it clear to everyone what had happened. A eh, because of, as an advocate of someone around mental health, the fact that I didn't want to shy away the fact that it was suicide. Because why should suicide be any different to a sudden heart attack or a car crash? You know, it is different, but it's why should there be any shame? So I wanted to be honest. Did you about did you that.
1: discuss that with your family about? Yes,
0: of course. It was something we sat down. It, but yeah. they all they all said, look, this is the right thing to do. You know, it's something we need to be straight about and. That's what we did. We, we we did that as a family. Wrote everything as a family, and I did that post. And the reaction was incredible. I mean, the number of people that engaged and messaged me, and either direct messages or videos or messages on the post itself, was absolutely unbelievable. And that was, it did actually help me, honestly, in those days afterwards. I, in the days where I was absolute in desperation. There's no other word for it. I was really, really, completely lost to the world. You know, I just did not know what was going on at all, completely. I mean, I didn't sleep for four days, like not a second. When people say I didn't sleep, I mean, I really didn't have a second sleep for about four nights. But then I did need that time and quiet afterwards, you know, to reflect, to deal with what happened, to be with the family. And it was really important. And when I came back, I was feeling more like I was in the right space. Because there is a lot of pressure. I think people... Underestimate. Certainly, I always underestimated how much work. I mean, you know how it is. You've done it for a long time, how much pressure there is on social media, on other platforms, media in general, because you've got to get it right. Definitely get picked up much more quickly than other people if you make a mistake. And especially as a healthcare professional, a lot of time I'm talking about healthcare, maybe not advice, but topics and things. You, you feel pressure. You don't want to get it wrong. And the eye is on you often to get it right. So that's sometimes difficult. But on the whole, I've been very fortunate. I hardly touch would hardly ever get any trolling. When I do, to be honest, I just let it roll off my back. There's not much that people can say now. I really, honestly, I've experienced some of the best and worst things in life that I can kind of go, do you know what, take it and leave it. It's fine. So I ignore the bad stuff, to be honest. I, I take on board the good things. I get strength because I feel like I can help. And the number of people that messaged me since what's happened with clear and me speaking about it, and said, actually I've reached out I was quite suicidal I've reached out for help I've had people message me saying I actively had plans and I've got help and I just want to thank you a huge number of people I'm not saying that in any sense of like oh you know look at me I've helped all these people but it does give me energy of course it does you know it makes me feel oh gosh if I help some people surely this is really really a good thing
1: yeah I think that's the thing is with social media it has a very bad rep and a lot of the time rightly so like I'm glad I didn't grow up with social media but I do think you know like as for me like talking about mental health it gets it out to a wider audience and people do open up like it's not big-headed of you to say that you've helped someone like that's the whole point of it and people do appreciate it and it does make a difference and I think everything you're doing will make a big difference and I don't know I've really enjoyed talking to you I feel like I could just keep asking you questions about uh, your views and what you're doing to help to make it better and I think probably the best thing was going on to Love Island and choosing that to make a difference. Um, yeah, absolutely. Is, is it's, it's amazing. It's been, so. it's been
0: really, it's been, I've been fortunate to do a lot of things. And I think, you know, one of the pro- one of the things I've been working hard on is my book. I've written a book over the last year. It's something I wanted to do for many years. And it feels weird that it's now that it's happening with everything that has happened. But actually, I, this book had been pretty much written before anything happened with here, and he was very proud about it. But I, you know, I really wanted to make a book basically that would support people and the idea around the 360 degree view of health, almost, you know, the fact that you hopefully can, you know, make small changes in different aspects of your life, whether it's, uh, you know, fitness, whether it's your passions and purpose, whether it's finding balance in your nutrition, all these things that add up to good change. And I've been very lucky, you know, the the book is coming out very soon. It's called Live Well Every Day. And so I hope, I hope that will, will help people. And that's my big focus right now and having something that you're really passionate about and that you're, you really believe in, I think really helps. And that has actually really helped me through this time as well. Thinking, right, come on, you've got to, if this book helps one person, then it's worthwhile doing. And it's got me through this time, I think, really has.
1: Yeah, I look forward to reading that. I think that sounds like a great idea. It's important to have a passion. I think sometimes a lot of us feel like we don't have that. That can be quite difficult I think we're we're made to kind of make that decision at a really young age like what GCSEs are you going to do to then go and do your A-levels because then what A-levels are you going to do and unless you're someone like yourself who has a really clear idea of what they want to do it's quite a lot of pressure from such a young age to know and I think often we feel like everyone else has got their shit together and that's a big thing that comes with social media, isn't it? Is that and I think the truth is that like... no one's
0: got it no one's got their shit together, no. is honest and <laughs> I, I don't I think I've ever real I've never been in my life, but like you know, I said to you this, before we started recording, I was running around this has been a terrible day. I've had an awful day today. You know, you look at my Instagram a great I've had a te- everything go has gone wrong today. Like all oh, this is all first world problems, but you know things things have gone wrong that I would like to have gone right. And you're like, do you know what that you get that sometimes and we've no one has it together all the time. You know, I think is a 50/50 thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 100%. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. That's why. Yeah. Um, Give yourself
0: down days. I accept that tonight, today has not been. a... You know, this has been actually really good. You've actually lifted my mood today. Actually, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. I I was, I was really fed up at this point, but uh, I've come on with you, (laughs) and I felt really lifted. So I'm pleased for that. So hopefully that energy is passed on.
1: No, I thought I'd do this blue no, podcast.
0: No, 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 no. I was like, I thought I was ready for it. Then I realised the mic wasn't right, and then the internet wouldn't work. But do you know what? It's fine. And you roll with it. I think that's part of life is accepting that stuff. Sometimes you get thrown stuff at you, and like, oh, it's not going right. But going, do you know what? That's okay, because it's not happening all the time. You roll with it, accept how life is, and just breathe and get through it, and it's fine. Well,
1: thank you. I've absolutely loved talking to you. I'm gonna let you go because I've had you for so long but i just think that's a great thing to end on and i think the amazing thing with you is that people can listen to you and take you seriously you are a doctor so you know medically what's going on but also you know from personal experience how important mental health is and so thank you so much for everything you're doing and keep it up and i can't wait to read the book
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And the book, it will be available for pre-order now as well. So I'll mention that. I feel very weird saying that. I never thought I'd write a book. If someone's dyslexic, I never thought I'd get to say that. But my book is available <laughs> for pre-order. It. I've done it. So thank you so much. And <laughs> I keep doing this podcast because if you help, I'm sure you've helped many people, but if you've helped one person, there's one boy or girl or man or woman that listens to it and it helps and it's well worthwhile. So well done to you as well.
1: Thank you. If you're feeling depressed or unsure about your mental health, the most important thing you can do is to talk to someone. The Samaritans run a confidential 24-hour helpline which you can call for free in the UK on 116 123 or you can visit samaritans.org for other ways to find support. You should also contact your local GP. Please remember you are not alone. There is always someone to talk to that wants to help.